Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York. Warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us on a day of pricing predicaments and rate readjustments for global investors and for global consumers. Take a look at this. U.S. stocks coming off a truly miserable Monday with the S&P 500 finishing the day in bear market territory. So we're talking down 20% from recent highs as investors began pricing in a more aggressive rate rising path from the Federal Reserve. Goldman Sachs, one of the first to say they expect a three-quarter percent rate hike at the meeting tomorrow and at the next meeting in July too. Tomorrow's move would be the biggest one-day hike in borrowing costs since 1994. And that, of course, is going to have a clear impact on consumer activity and market mentality too. And I think that's what we saw playing out very clearly on Monday. Shock at how fast the Federal Reserve may now have to move. The S&P 500 finishing the day down almost 4%. The tech-heavy Nasdaq tumbling more than 4.5%. It was the worst day for U.S. stocks since the start of the global pandemic. And it wasn't just about stocks. U.S. 10-year government bond yields hitting their highest levels in more than a decade, too. Fast forward then to today, and U.S. futures are, at least for now, as you can see, higher. We're seeing some consolidation after the pain yesterday. At some point, more clarity over the Fed's path and greater commitment to fighting inflation will be considered a good thing. The problem is investors have just forgotten or are too young even to remember what a tightening cycle looks and feels like. The Federal Reserve's task all the more urgent with the release of today's latest inflation numbers, the producer price index, which measures the cost of inflation at the factory gate, rising at an almost 11% annual rate. Actually a little weaker than expected, but still near record levels. Rahel Solomon joins us now. Rahel, plenty to discuss, but it did feel like a dramatic shift in expectations. And suddenly everyone in the market was saying, particularly in light of that inflation print that we got on Friday, the Fed's going to have to come sooner and it's going to have to move quicker. Julia, exactly. I think Friday meant that the Fed is going to have to throw out its playbook, right? The last time we heard from Powell, he said that 50 basis points was on the table for the next two meetings. And even that seemed like an acceleration. But then after Friday, we learned that inflation here in the U.S., is not only not moderating, but it appears to be accelerating. And so the fear now is that the Fed's going to have to throw out that playbook. It's going to have to do a lot more. And so that's why we're hearing these reports now that 75 basis points will be on the table, which, Julie, as you know, we haven't seen since 1994, since uh, Boys to Men was on the radio here in the U.S. So it will be uh, quite a stark announcement when we hear from the Powell, uh, when we hear from the Fed chair Powell tomorrow, if in fact they do do 75. But look, I think you have sort of two camps out there, right? You have those who are concerned about recession and now uh, the, in, the the risk of recession growing with the Fed having to be more aggressive. And then you have those who are just very concerned about inflation. And we know that Fed Chair Powell has said that fighting inflation is his top priority. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, if that causes a recession, uh, that will that will remain to be seen. But it looks like the fighting inflation is their top priority at this point. 
Yeah, and higher prices also has an impact on consumer behaviour too. If you can't afford to fill your car and go on journeys or can't afford to feed your family, then that's also recessionary too. So to your point, it's caught between the devil and the deep. Also caught between the devil and the deep here, President Biden himself. He's set to talk today, 11 a.m. Eastern, to discuss the economy, inflation, ongoing challenges there. Rahel, what can he say that he hasn't already said? Well, we know he needs to say something different because uh, sentiment is... uh at historic lows. People are feeling overwhelmingly pessimistic about the U.S. economy right now. What can he say is, you know, one thing. I think what he can do is another thing. There have been calls, Julia, for the administration to reconsider some of its tariffs on China. And there are there's a feeling that doing so would actually reduce price pressures in the short term on some goods that are imported from China. So that's one thing. Uh, We know that increased supply of oil, that would be another thing, perhaps why we're seeing a a thawing of relationships between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia being one of the few uh, OPEC countries that has spare oil. Uh, So those are two things that folks uh, see as potential price pressure improvements in the short term. But look, Julia, to your point, he has to say something that uh, he hasn't said before, because we have heard from both the, the president and the administration quite a bit over the last few weeks, and it doesn't appear to be helping sentiment. Consumers are still feeling overly pessimistic about the economy. Yes, looking for those relief valves. And to your exact point, it's the difference between what he can say and what he can do. And um, you gave us the perfect teaser to the next segment there too. Rahel, thank you very much for that. And I was speaking to former New York Fed Chief Bill Dudley all about inflation and the Federal Reserve and Brian Brooks, the CEO of Bitfury Group, about what's going on in the crypto markets all coming up later on in the show. For now, though, as Rahel mentioned there, President Biden will make a controversial trip to Saudi Arabia next month, according to the White House, reversing his campaign pledge to treat the kingdom as a pariah after the death of the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi four years ago. The White House press secretary was grilled exactly on this on Monday. Back on the Saudi issue for a second, does President Biden believe that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was responsible for Kamal, uh, Jamal. I mean, we've spoken to this before. I think he was asked this question uh, directly recently last week. Um, so, uh, look, the president is is focused on uh, getting things done for the American people. On the question that I asked, though, does he believe uh, that MBS was responsible for Khashoggi's death? The president has spoken to this uh, before, and I'm going to just let his words stand. Does Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I, I'm, I've already answered the question. Nick Robertson joins me now. Nick, an ongoing awkward exchange there. And I think as the press secretary was alluding to there, energy security, not the only reason for these two leaders to get together. But surely the situation with pricing pressures and the oil market and the reliance of the energy markets on Saudi's oil is a catalyst at the very least. They're a swing state. They're a swing producer, rather. And that's huge for the United States right now, huge for Europeans as well, struggling to find replacement for oil that they would have previously purchased from Russia. Um, The pressure has been on the Saudis for some time at the OPEC Plus meeting, and they've resisted that pressure along with Russia to uh, increase 
But the, the reality is that the Saudis also want something from the United States. They want that strong relationship. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman um, really is expected to be the leader uh, of what is going to be and is essentially the most powerful kingdom in the Gulf for decades to come. And that relationship with the United States is as important to the Saudis as it is to the United States. And right now, uh, that relationship has, has, has tilted in the favor of Saudi having something that's very valuable for President Biden. And the real politic is President Biden needs to give up a little bit of that ground that he talked about, about making Saudi Arabia a pariah, a little bit of the ground that he talked about in some of his early speeches as president, as being a, a, a president who values and cherishes democracy and democratic values around the world. Um, but it's a historic relationship between the two countries. And I think that's what they're both leaning on here. And when you read the press statement from the Saudis about this meeting, they stress that it's coming at the invitation of King Salman. That likely is something that will please President Biden very much. They stress the fact that the first meeting um, will be with King Salman. Uh, that, however, President Biden does go on to meet with uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And there's a whole raft of different issues in there, um, you know, technology, space, uh, uh, food, uh, many, many issues that, that, that the Saudis want to talk about. Energy security is one of those in there. But interestingly, it's not at the top of the list for the Saudis. In fact, you know, late mm. last year, they were quite displeased at the way they felt they were being treated coming out of the big COP summit and uh, climate change summit in Glasgow, being told to dial back, you know, uh, petroleum products and then later being told, no, dial it up again. Yeah, each needs something at least something from this relationship and the timing fits both sides here. Real politic, Nick, to your point. Thank you so much for that. Okay, let's move on. One of the most brutal battles in Europe and for Europe. President Zelensky on the battle for Donbass in Ukraine after Russian forces seized control of the center of Severodonetsk. And to add to that, Ukrainian officials now say all three bridges into the city are impassable. CNN's Sam Abdelaziz joins us now from Kyiv. Sam, good to have you with us. If these bridges now, these main routes are impassable, what does that mean both for getting supplies in, but also perhaps evacuations and getting people out? It makes it ever more difficult, Julia. Ukrainian mm. officials say that evacuations continue by the minute. But again, with those three bridges now broken, and you do have to remember the shelling is constant in that city. That means people are pinned down in basements, pinned down underground. Evacuations are becoming extremely, extremely difficult. Uh, we have an estimated 10,000 people that are still trapped in uh, Severodonetsk. Uh, some of them, a few hundred of them, are in a steel plant, a steel factory uh, pinned down there. And Russia Russia is stepping in with a very worrying remark here. They say they want to help with these evacuations, but they're going to take residents to Russian-occupied territories. Now, this has happened in the past in other Russian-occupied places, and these civilians have had to move through what are called filtration camps, have their paperwork checked, and human rights groups say essentially forced into Russian territory with no option. So that's not something that you were going to want to see Ukrainian forces, of course, see happen here. And President Zelensky yesterday in his nightly address uh, painting a very bleak picture. Take a listen. The price of this battle for us is very high. It's just scary. And we draw the attention of our partners on a daily basis to the fact that only a sufficient number of modern artillery for Ukraine will ensure our advantage. And finally, the end of Russian torture of the Ukrainian Donbass. 
You hear President Zelensky there yet again pleading for weaponry from the West. They are outmanned. They are outgunned. Uh, Russia is using superior artillery power. Uh, they're using multiple rockish, rocket launch systems, which Ukraine has very few of. And importantly, they're using air power, air support to really push back these Ukrainian positions. According to Ukraine's own reporting, 70 to 80 percent of Severodonetsk, including the city center, is now under Russian control. It's just a matter of when this city will fall, not if any longer. Russian-backed separatists already calling on Ukrainian forces to lay down their arms. They say surrender or die. And this would be a major victory, of course, for uh, Moscow's troops. They see these territories as Russian territories. They completely disregard the sovereignty of Ukraine. And it's one step towards taking that whole of the Donbass, eventually annexing it, much like they did with Crimea, and creating that connection, that land bridge uh, that President Putin wants to see from Russian territory down to Crimea and to those ports on the Black Sea. President Zelensky keeps making the same point over and over again, Julia, and it's are we going to allow might to make right or will the West step in and say brute force is not going to allow President Putin to just take these territories? One of Europe's most brutal battles, the words of President Zelensky, to your point. Sam, thank you. Sam Abdelaziz there. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The January 6th committee is revealing damning testimony from members of former U.S. President Donald Trump's inner circle. The committee laid out evidence during its second televised hearing on Monday that President Trump, former President Trump, knew his claims that widespread vote fraud had taken place were false. The House panel also presented a case that Trump then used the lie as a fundraising tool. In Russia, an aide of Alexei Navalny says the opposition politician has disappeared from the penal colony where he was imprisoned. A member of his organization says he failed to appear for a planned meeting with his attorneys today and they haven't been told where he is. CNN has reached out to Navalny's lawyers for comment. UK authorities say the first deportation flight to remove asylum seekers to Rwanda will take place this Tuesday. Critics have condemned the migration agreement between the UK and Rwanda as inhumane, saying Britain is outsourcing its responsibilities. But London says the deportations are necessary to deter illegal migration and people smuggling networks. Okay, straight ahead here on First Move, consumer prices higher, stocks lower. We have former New York Federal Reserve President Bill Dudley on the new investment climate. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And we're moving from patient power, perhaps, to punisher power. Global investors still in a state of, uh, call it policy perturbation, after a truly remarkable, albeit painful day on Monday that saw investors pricing in a more aggressive rate hike when the U.S. Federal Reserve wraps up its policy meeting tomorrow. With apologies to Sherlock Holmes, we could perhaps also call it the 75 basis point solution. In English, the three quarters of a percent hike rather than a tamer half a percent hike is now the market's expectation. It's a tough luff message for investors, too, but perhaps a necessary one to convince investors the Fed is truly on the inflation fighting case. U.S. futures trying to bounce after a seven S&P 500 tumbled into bear market territory yesterday. Bond yields also easing slightly after Monday's jump higher. But more volatility could also be on its way as we await the Fed's statement tomorrow and Chair Powell's press conference. 
someone who has the better sense of this perhaps than anyone. Bill Dudley joins us now. He's the former president of the New York Federal Reserve and he's currently the senior research scholar at Princeton University's Center for Economic Policy Studies. Bill, fantastic to have you on the show and get your wisdom. Given everything that you've seen, be it data and the market moves, do you think that a three quarters of a percentage point rate hike is on the cards tomorrow? Yes, yes, absolutely. At this point, I think this was choreographed by the Federal Reserve. I think they wanted to make sure that they were not falling farther behind the curve. And so they had some conversations with some key journalists and it's priced in now. Uh, So definitely we're going to see 75 basis points at this meeting. It's called Fed whispering. There was some whispering in ears of people just to prepare everybody. They don't want to have surprises. Now there's no surprise because everyone's predicting it. Yeah, the big surprise would be now if they went back to 50 basis points. Right. So, uh, basis points. What about July? I think they were really concerned. July, I think, still up in the air. But you're, you know, you're absolutely right. If you if you do 75 in June, 75 in July, it has to be on, on the table. And I think the reason why they're moving faster is two things. One, the inflation data is worse, uh, staying higher for longer. And two, we saw some uh, figures on inflation expectations that were you know, not as benign as the ones we had seen earlier. So I think the Fed was worried about their credibility. So I think the 75 basis points is really about ensuring that the Fed has credibility as an inflation fighter so that inflation expectations don't get further uh, uh, unlinked. Do you think they, they have it now under control with this shift in messaging? Because I think your point there is very valid. There's a few things that they've watched. The data having looked like it was stabilizing to some degree in the past month, we now got the sense from that inflation data on on Friday that it simply hasn't. And at the same time, they were willing to wait and see what happens and follow the data and suddenly it all looked like, particularly with the shift in expectations for consumers, which is so important too, if that gets entrenched, they're just way behind. It feels a bit bit like a lurch. Uh, Yeah, it feels a bit feels a bit like a lurch to me. But you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I think they do need to show a tighter monetary policy path. And I think what's going to be very interesting in the uh, meeting is what they show in terms of their economic projections. The economic projections they've had for both the last two times, December and March, were sort of Alice in Wonderland. Uh, inflation just magically melted away, even though monetary policy wasn't made very tight and the unemployment rate didn't rise. So I think they're going to have to show a much more uh, credible forecast. I'm going to ask us, Alice, because it was literally my second question to you before we saw what we saw yesterday was what I simply do not understand in their forecasts is how inflation comes down. What's the catalyst for for bringing it down? And and you're sort of asking the same question here. Well, I think they thought that some of the inflation would come down just because uh, the demand for goods would, would, would fall and the demand for services would go up as the economies reopen. So that would take some of the upward pressure on goods prices. But there's no guarantee. Uh, subside. Now, I think the new wild card is the Ukraine-Russia war, which is causing a pretty big energy price shock. It looks like it could be uh, persistent. There's two things that take place with policy steps. There's an announcement that the Federal Reserve make and then the market adjusts and there's the actual action that they take. And so far, what we've seen is talk about Federal Reserve rate hikes and the prospect of them coming in the future. But at the same time, the market already adjusts. The US dollar is stronger. Credit conditions have already tightened, which makes 
credit for people, borrowing credit cards more expensive anyway, because that price first. Bill, I know it's a sort of finger in the wind question, but how much of the tightening work is being done for them by the shifts that we're already seeing in the market versus um, what they ultimately have to do? I guess the question that I'm asking is to our earlier point about what what brings inflation down, how much do they have to do versus is done for them anyway? Well, the reason it's being done for them is because markets expect the Fed to fall through and raise rates further. So the Fed is basically, you know, foreshadowed the future path of short term interest rates, which, which is considerably higher than where we are now. So the markets are incorporating those expectations. And so the bond market is selling off, the stock market is selling off. And that's what the Federal Reserve wants to happen. The Fed wants financial conditions to tighten because that's going to be the mechanism that slows economic growth generates more slack in the labor market, and that's what brings inflation down. So the Fed is not unhappy about what's happening to the bond market or stock market. This is by design, not by accident. All of it? Pretty much all of it. I think the only thing the Fed, if they had to do it over again, they would have started a lot sooner. Yeah. (laughs) Shoulda, woulda, coulda. Something that you mentioned there, which I think is really important and we've not talked about it at all, really, is is the labour market, the other side of the of the dual mandate and what isn't incorporated in the data that we saw on Friday. And that's wage pressures. If you want to introduce some stability in that, where do you need to be in the labour market in terms of the unemployment rate? And it sounds like a crazy thing to say, given how hard they've worked to add those incremental jobs and get those people back into the labour force and perhaps goes to your point about why they waited so long. But where's the um, the sweet spot there in terms of the labour market? Well, you want a tight labour market, but you don't want a too tight labour market. And right now we have a too tight labor market because there's 1.9 unfilled jobs for every unemployed worker. Uh, That compares to where we were in February 2020 before the pandemic. The ratio was 1.2 to 1. So we have basically the tightest labor market probably in history. And that's really what's generating some upward pressure on wages. Uh, The labor market's too tight. The Fed needs to make it looser. And so the unemployment rate needs to drift up. And and it's going to be very interesting to see if the Fed finally writes that down in terms of their forecast. That's uncomfortable politically, going into midterm elections. I mean, surely that must be a conversation that's being had between the Federal Reserve and, and the White House. They've got to aggressively tighten rates. They need an unemployment rate that's higher. I mean, it's multiple ouches. Right. But the inflation problem is a big problem for the Biden administration as well. I mean, the reason why consumer confidence is so depressed, it's all about higher inflation. So I think, you know, if you have a slightly higher unemployment rate and that bring and that's consistent with lower inflation, it's not clear that that's a bad thing from the Biden administration. And the Biden administration essentially washed their hands a little bit of inflation. They said, we're going to let let the Fed take care of this. It's the Fed's job. Uh, We're going to treat the Fed as an independent institution. So the Biden administration has basically kicked the ball into the Fed's court. They can't, unfortunately, kick the political blowback or um, voter sentiment no, even they if they're leaving they it like to them to, to deal like with. To, of course, of course I can. know. You've long been saying that recession is going to be hard to avoid. In light of what we've seen in the last 24 hours, 48 hours, then we can include the data on Friday. Is it a given now? Well, let's put it this way. The odds were always high. 
now they're higher because the Federal Reserve is going to be more aggressive in terms of monetary policy, and they're going to push the unemployment rate up. I mean, the, the key reason why I'm so convinced that there's going to be a hard landing is because every time the unemployment rate has risen by more than a half a percent in the U.S., we've had a full-blown uh, recession. Now, I don't think the recession is going to happen tomorrow. I think the economy actually still has considerable forward momentum. So I think this is really more of a 2023-2024 story, not a 2022 story. So hard landing, uh, highly likely, but not quite yet. We're still coming off the a V-shaped recovery after the pandemic as well. And part of the story here is the sheer quantity of stimulus and, and money slushing around in the economy anyway. What I'm worried about most is the the bottom quartile of people that live paycheck to paycheck that are most damaged by rising fuel prices and food prices, actually wherever you are in the world. But obviously we're talking about the United States here. How concerning in light of what we're discussing, Bill, is it for them for the next 18 months to two years. You hit the nail. You hit the nail on the head. It's going to fall disproportionately on them because fuel and energy is a, a bigger proportion of their consumption basket because they don't have as much financial resources to deal with higher inflation um, because they're probably less, you know, well attached to the to, to, to the labor force and, and, and being employed. So I think the burden is going to fall disproportionately on them. And that's really, really one of the you know, mistakes, I think, that was made. If we could have had a little bit more preemptive monetary policy, uh, the Fed wouldn't have to stand on the brakes as hard. And that would have probably made, allowed us to not cause this damage to low-income low, low, low households. Yeah, cushioned the people that, that need it most. Bill? Yeah, the, Fed's, the Fed's heart was in the right place. The Fed's heart was in the right place. They wanted to basically get these people employed, which I think is really admirable. But you know, too much of, of anything is a bad thing. And what happened here is we had too much monetary policy stimulus for too long, and the labor market got to a to degree of tightness that's not really consistent with 2% inflation over time. And then a war in Ukraine. Yeah, that was bad luck. I mean, because that yeah. generated a whole other set of shocks. And, you know, the U.S. is fairly well insulated from those shocks from a, from a growth perspective because the U.S. produces a lot of grain and they produce a lot of energy. So, you know, the, the burden on the growth side is going to fall disproportionately on low-income countries and on Europe. Yeah. And we'll keep talking about it. Bill, great to have you with us. Thank you for your wisdom, as Thank always. You. Bill Dudley, the former president of the New York Federal Reserve. OK, coming up here on First Move, Crypto Crunch. Bitfury Group CEO Brian Brooks joins us with his insight as investors continue to shed risky assets. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. And from a miserable Monday to a tentative Tuesday on Wall Street, U.S. stocks are higher in early trade after Monday's sharp pullback that saw the S&P 500 close in bear market territory. So that's down 20 percent from recent highs. All this as the Federal Reserve begins its two-day policy meeting in Washington. An aggressive three-quarters of a percent rate hike is now seen likely tomorrow, as you heard from Bill Dudley just a moment ago, too. Powell and company getting another crucial piece of inflation data over the past hour as well. U.S. producer prices in May up 10.8% from a year ago, due in large part to soaring energy prices. That's actually down a touch from April's levels, but still sitting near record highs. And continued pressure in digital assets like crypto 
Bitcoin falling below $23,000 after plunging 15% on Monday was the biggest single day drop since March of 2020. Ethereum trading under $1,300. It's lost around 75% of its value since November. Another one, Litecoin, has dropped 70% so far this year. Also under pressure, crypto exchanges. Coinbase says it will lay off 18% of its workforce as the company's shares hit an all-time low. And so-called crypto lending platform Celsius temporarily suspending withdrawals and transfers. The company manages more than $11 billion in assets. Meanwhile, shares of MicroStrategy, which is significant Bitcoin holding, sliding once again after plunging 25% on Monday. The company said earlier it would face a margin call if Bitcoin drops to $21,000. What on earth is going on? Joining us now with his wisdom and insight, Brian Brooks, the CEO of Bitfury Group. He's also the former CEO of Binance US. Brian, Thank goodness we have you on to explain what's going on. It does feel a little bit like a watershed. Um, Bitcoin below $23,000. How far might this fall? Yeah, Julia, as you were going through your litany of uh, the overnight movements, I was just thinking, can she please make it stop? You know, there's it's hard to overestimate how how uh, how ugly the situation is right now. And the the problem, I believe, is that the situation we're in doesn't have an obvious bottom to it. And it isn't because digital assets don't have a ton of value in them, but it is because a perfect storm of factors has happened. You had two major projects blow up in the last three weeks, which has caused people to question the whole sector. And then you have everything that your previous guest talked about, the macro environment being insanely ugly, labor force participation masking an artificially low unemployment rate, strong energy price raises, which make it very hard to mine Bitcoin profitably, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot going on here, and it's not clear where the bottom is. It also gives ammunition to the skeptics, to your point, when you see a stable coin not being stable, you've got a shakedown going on in, a, um, in an exchange that's saying, look, I can't cope with the level of volumes that we're seeing. Suddenly, everybody looks at this sector and goes, there was never any value there in the first place. Uh, let's head for the exits. Yeah, there's no question about it. There was a famous headline from, I want to say the year was 1998 or 1999, talking about how the internet was over because millions of people were cutting their AOL subscriptions in the middle of that uh, that particular recession. And, you know, what those of us who remember those days know is there's fundamental long-term technology being built here that will rewire the global financial system without question. But right now, the people who are the late adopters and the people who are the day traders and the easy money people, they're abandoning ship. And that creates this sense of panic. In the end, the people who hang in will be the people who build the next generation's Amazon and Google. But that's going to be a couple of years out at this point. Yeah, I mean, to, to go to the comparison that you made with the dot com, a lot of things did blow up for good reason at that point, And great things were created at the same time in the future. Absolutely. It's like it's, it's like in forest management is the analogy I think about. At some point, the undergrowth has to burn in order for the tall trees to have space to grow. And that that is a little bit of what's going on here. There's also an argument to be made that this was an asset class that thrived on uh, central bank overspe- uh, irresponsibility, government overspending. And so there's perhaps no surprise that it suffers in an environment where you start to see some degree of greater fiscal responsibility in a central bank that goes, okay, we really have to be aggressive now to contain price pressures like inflation that we're seeing. Yeah, I I think that's right. And I think this is one of the areas where Bitcoin in particular has this inflationary role that people don't understand very well. Um, you, You know, the way that Bitcoin really works is it's a signal of future inflation expectations. And so 
over the last two years when Bitcoin had its 5x rate of return going from 4,000 to you know 20,000 and then to almost 70,000, it was doing that in an environment where easy money policies were prevailing, right? It was fiscal stimulus and zero interest rates on the monetary side. And that expectation of super low interest rates and high inflation as it was building drove Bitcoin to highs. Now that we're talking about 75 basis point rate increases, and that's on the heel of the last several rate increases, the first we've seen in a decade, it's not surprising that Bitcoin reacts negatively to that. It is a forecast of future inflation, and now it's forecasting there will be aggressive monetary policy. So that might be good for the world, it's bad for Bitcoin. I know, I can hear the sceptics yelling at the television and saying that it rose in a period of extreme froth and speculation. Um, but we can debate that point till the, till the cows come home. I want to move on and talk about the behaviour of some of the exchanges here and, and what that says about the sheer size of this market, the scale of this market. And for whatever reason, and you can throw in a lot of things, be it a, a lack of regulatory clarity, lack of big market makers, um, the market's too big for the infrastructure that at the moment houses it. Yeah, there's, there's, that, that is for sure. And you've seen this before. I mean, back in 2017 and 2018, in the last major bull market, you saw the very same thing, which is as prices were rapidly rising, the exchanges froze because they didn't have the technology capacity to handle that many trades that quickly. Uh, and you see the same thing on the way down. Volumes are very, very high. And the companies that are leading the space, which are terrific companies filled with very, very smart people, nonetheless don't have industrial grade risk management. They don't have systems that are designed to handle millions and millions of transactions an hour, which is what they're seeing. This is one of the reasons when you mentioned regulatory clarity, why I've believed ever since I was the controller of the currency that it's imperative that we create a better connection between the traditional banking and broker dealer system and crypto. Those kinds of companies do have the infrastructure to handle this level of volume because they've been doing it for 100 years. But as long as we insist on keeping crypto separate from banks outside of the regulatory perimeter, it's much more likely you will have these rapid asynchronicity sort of moments where, where the system can't handle the trading. Yeah, because you've got the, some of the biggest market makers in the world, the citadels of the world, the JP Morgans are saying, look, give us some regulatory guidelines and clarity here and we'll, we'll be involved. But they can't do that without it. They're too big, quite frankly, for that and have too much responsibility. No, you're, you're absolutely right. On the other hand, you mentioned JP Morgan, and that's an example of why those of us who've been in this for a long time are so optimistic about the future, because for all of the lack of regulatory clarity, just last week, JP Morgan said that it was engaged in tokenizing trillions of dollars of real assets to bring them on blockchain. What that tells me is when the leaders in the traditional sector start embracing innovation, it makes it much more likely that the regulators have to listen because regulators always listen to their incumbents more than the challengers. And, and so that's a long-term good sign, even amidst all this carnage. Speaking of carnage, Celsius, Brian, in my introduction there, I mentioned that they manage money. And to a keen ear, someone should be going, hang on a, hang on a second, what do you mean managing money? Is this a hedge fund What's the deal here, particularly when they're providing astonishing returns? What is Celsius? Yeah, well, and, and, and if there's one thing we learned from uh, past controversies, you know, the Bernie Madoff controversy and things like that, when people promise you astonishing returns, you will be astonished when they're delivered, right? And so the problem with Celsius, like the disaster at Terra Luna just a couple of weeks ago, is you had two projects that were masquerading as decentralized finance product projects 
which really weren't decentralized at all. There really was a management team that was taking your money, was turning around and trading your money in hopes of achieving insanely high returns, and then promising they would share some of that with you in the form of something that they called interest. But here's a news flash: If in this environment you think you can get 18% interest, you know that 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 is that's when it's time to call the top. That's like when uh, you know in the in the depression, people said that they were getting stock tips from their shoeshine guy. That's a very bad sign. <laughs> Celsius was not a decentralized finance project. It was a group of people who borrowed your tokens, traded them in the hopes of achieving high returns, and promised they'd pay you back. When they couldn't get those returns, the withdrawals showed up and the project blew up. That's again why centralized projects need to be regulated. Those companies are no different from hedge funds. Well, I mean, you use the term Bernie Madoff, so I'm going to push you even further and say Ponzi scheme. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard to know if it's exactly a Ponzi scheme, but what it certainly is is something that uh, you know acts as though it's a perpetual motion machine. And at the end of the day, when redemptions start outstripping new money, they they fall to zero. Yeah. So again, point of crypto is decentralization, and when you see these projects that are actually managed by central management teams people deserve disclosure. Risk management has to exist. This is why we have regulation. We shouldn't throw out the decentralization project because of the failure of Celsius. But in the early days, people are going to paint the whole industry with the Celsius brush. And therein lies the key, because I'll use the term Ponzi and it can be my word, not your word, but it sort of taints the entire sector. And it goes to the point of what we saw from Coinbase today. They're laying off 80 percent of their of their workforce. There's this sort of chill wind effect, I think, that's being created across the whole sector, not a separation between the underlying technology and and the tokens themselves, Brian. And I guess the fear is that that crypto goes into a, a winter. Yeah, look, I, 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 I think that's a real possibility. I mean, there are people who talk about the idea that a crypto bear market has three parts and we're late in part two, right? Part one is when you have a small price correction of 10 or 20%, people are basically positive and they say, this is good. Now these are more sustainable prices. Part two is you have some big external event like, like a Celsius disaster, and that causes a massive blow up. And what happens then is you have big price falls with a few small you know, bumps along the way going up. But people are selling into the bump, not buying into the bump. And that's when things slide into a winter environment. So I think many of us are buckling down for an 18-month difficult period. But again, remember, in the dot-com bust, many, many people said that because pets.com failed, the entire project of the internet was a scam. We know that wasn't true. But enough people believed it at the time that internet stocks stayed very low for a couple of years. And that's likely to happen here, too. Brian, there's good news in all of this, and that is the 50 employees that you had in Ukraine that you pulled out and sent to other countries. Talk to me about providing them with financial support and how you did it. Yeah, you, you know, it's, 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 I think outside of tech, it's not well known that Ukraine had a very, very strong, robust and innovative software engineering culture. Many of the best software engineers in Europe were located in Ukraine and our company had, you know, several different business units with people there. When the war came, obviously, it was up to them and us to figure out ways out. And in the early going, you know, we put together traditional financial packages to help relocate them to places like Poland or to our office in Amsterdam or to Georgia or other places in the region. And that worked for a while. We had a number of people who successfully relocated there. 
But as the war intensified, some of the people that didn't take the offer early on found themselves trapped by an inability to access traditional payment systems because that part of the world was basically cut off, either in the case of Russia by, by the West or in the case of Ukraine by the war. And the question is, how could we deliver value to these folks to get them to, to you know, peaceful locations where they could be safe with their families and to do their work? And the answer was, Bitcoin was a way that we could send value to unsanctioned people who worked for us and get them to safety in places like Turkey or Dubai or other places in the region. And without Bitcoin, you know, it's not clear that we could have helped those people feed their families. And so the thing I'd ask people to remember is in a time of price volatility, the purpose of Bitcoin, among others, is to create a financial ecosystem that isn't governed by prevailing political winds by war and geopolitics and those kinds of things to create a financial system that is independent and controlled by users. And we were awfully glad we could use that to get some of our people out of the war zone. Brian, thank you for what you did for your people. Great to chat to you. And we'll speak again thank soon. You. Brian Thanks Brooks, so much. the CEO of BitFury. We'll speak soon. We're back after this. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. Mass COVID testing underway in Beijing after what officials called a, quote, ferocious outbreak. More than 250 cases have been linked to a bar in Beijing's most populous district. Selena Wang joins us on this story. Selena, Heaven Supermarket Bar. You're going to have to define what kind of an establishment that is. But I, I read that 10,000 of the bar's patrons have been identified and now their buildings have been put under lockdown. I mean, if that's a reason to stay at home, I don't know what is. Talk us through this. Well, and Julia, just to emphasize how seriously the government is taking this outbreak, China's vice premier went and visited the bar, said that COVID measures need to be strengthened. This is according to state media. And a criminal investigation has also been launched into this bar cluster to see if there was a potential breach of proto COVID protocols. So as a result of this bar cluster, they have found 250 COVID cases since Monday. And linked to the bar, they found 8,000 close contacts. And all the residential neighborhoods have been put under lockdown. This just shows how easy it is for loosening restrictions to take a U-turn in zero-COVID China, right when residents in Beijing thought the worst was behind them. Well, we are seeing COVID restrictions get strengthened once again. Beijing's largest district, Taoyang, last week, again, closed down all large entertainment venues just days after they allowed them to reopen. Most schools are delaying their reopening and hundreds of restaurants have closed down. Taoyang, Beijing's largest district, is also rolling out three days of mass testing. So across all major cities in China, you've got to have a 72-hour, at least a COVID test within 72 hours to enter any public venue. And during these periods of mass testing, you've got to get a COVID test every single day. So I'm in Taoyang. I've been doing that. And the lines, they are long. I've often been waiting an hour or more. And what's important to remember in China is that even if you yourself never test positive for COVID, there is always the risk that you could be isolated at home or sent to government quarantine because just one positive COVID case can send an entire community to government isolation facilities and the neighboring communities even all into home lockdown for two weeks or potentially more. Julia. Yeah, I mean, it's anxiety inducing. I think just watching people in your uh, apartment building going out, you'd be wondering whether they're going to catch it when they get out there and you'll end up in quarantine of some form. It's um, pretty scary, I think. Selena, hang in there, please. Selena Wang, thank you for the update. 
Welcome back to First Move. U.S. investors getting used to a new era of higher inflation, higher rates and slower growth. The S&P 500 is in a bear market and a new rate hike from the Fed is looming. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, and it's a, a bigger Fed rate hike than we were thinking even, yeah. what, 48 hours ago. They've yeah. got some real work to do and none of it's easy and none of it's easy for consumers in either way. It's all a really scary little mess here, quite frankly. And I think 75 basis points, Julie, is what the consensus is. Uh, the Fed chief has been very clear over the past month or so that they were expecting to see some peaking or moderating in these inflation numbers. And if they didn't, if the data was not showing that you know things were, were starting to slow, that they would be able to move more aggressively. He had said about a month ago they would be nimble if the incoming economic data you know, was showing that inflation was still too hot. And I think that the consensus is that's where we are. It's still too hot. This PPI number of 10.8% this morning, uh, the CPI number on Friday, which was just really sort of paints a picture of the pain at the grocery store and the gas station and, and in writing their rent checks that the American people are going through, all of that is just too hot and the Fed likely to have to start aggressively raising interest rates. If they do fit 75 basis points, it'll be the first time since 1994. And I think what's interesting here, it's not easy. There's no easy answer here. I mean, to cure the illness of inflation, which is something that people are, 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 the American consumer is sick with at the moment, you have to jack up interest rates, which also feels bad to the American consumer who happens to be a borrower, too. We've already seen mortgage rates a double from 3% earlier this year to 6%. So you're seeing the market actually responds, the market rates even ahead of where the Fed is here right now. It's funny, we were just talking to the former New York Fed governor, Bill Dudley, as well. And he said, among many things, they should have acted sooner. And they, yeah. their heart was in the right place in that they were trying to add the absolute last few workers that they could get into the labor market. And that's why they held out so long. But even now, wage pressure is so out of control that they're actually going to have to get the unemployment rate up in order to stabilize that. So job insecurity is going to rise. And for the, the bottom quartile of people in this country that live pay, pay, paycheck to paycheck, it's, it's pain on all sides. And that's who I'm really worried about is mm. the, the bottom earners. And here's why. They don't have the home equity built in. We are at record home prices in the United States right now. That's part of that era of cheap and easy money for all those years, right? And all that money sloshing around in the system. And they don't have the 401k balances that are still, I mean, look, they're down dramatically this year, but you're going back to January 2021 levels. So you still had an amazing run in the stock market if you're a long-term investor since the last crisis in 08 or 09. That's why so many people have been able to drop out of the labor market, right? Because they do have these cushions, but not for the lower income workers. And that's what I think is going to be a real political problem here in the United States um, as well. There, there's just no playbook for this, too. I mean, Julia, right? Don't I, I feel like every time there's a crisis or a mistake, we fight the last one that we had. You know, we take the lessons from the last crisis and try to apply it to the new one. This one is COVID lockdowns in China, a hot land war in Europe, um, an energy crisis and remaking the energy map and coming out of a COVID global health crisis uh, on top of maybe at the margin stimulus spending that could have added some some heat to the inflation numbers. Any yeah. one of those headlines is destabilizing. Bad enough. I just named six. <laughs> I know. And unlike the financial crisis, there was ballast there because it was in the West and Asia was relatively OK. Here it's the entire world that's involved. Yeah. So there's no... There's no balance. Christine Romans, thank you for that. Now we're thoroughly depressed. <laughs> That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN.
the world with Becky Anderson is up next. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.